0: This past February, the country of Russia invaded Ukraine, prompting a shift and a scramble for many of the churches on the ground in Ukraine. And for over 20 years, this church has had a relationship with Nick and Maya Mikuluk and the work that they've been doing in planting churches in and throughout Ukraine. So we, as a church, part of the money that you all give in your partnership with us is to fund ministries around the world, here in our city, and here in our nation. Part of what it means to be a partner is that we have the wonderful privilege to step in financially to support the Mikalux and the churches they support, and we've sent an initial gift to them. Um, as the Ukrainian army is liberating more and more area in Ukraine and these churches are going into these areas and seeing them absolutely decimated. uh, They are in need of more help. And so uh, the call this morning is for a special gift to the work that the Lord is doing in and through Ukraine. If this is something that you would like to be a part of, then you can write a check to us and in the memo, put uh, Ukraine or Mikalux just so we know what it's for. You can throw uh, some cash in an envelope and drop it um, in the box. You can come to us and let us know, hey, here's where and how we'd like to give. And you can also give online as well. I wanna commend that to you. It is such a joy to partner with God's people around the world. And after spending an hour with that woman, it was clear that she had been in the presence of Jesus and I felt like I had been in the presence of Jesus. And so I'm grateful for her and I'm grateful for y'all and for your continued faithfulness uh, in the ministry of the Lord. One of the ways that, uh, just to give you a little fruit of your faithfulness, yesterday was the Roswell Day of Hope. And uh, we had an opportunity to be there. My family was there and we had coffee and uh, boss went to bed last night. The Gideons handed out about three hundred and twenty, or excuse me, uh, the Gideons handed out 600 Bibles, uh, 625 Bibles to my three-year-old that was one of them. And uh, he went to bed last night with his Bible and he said, daddy, can we read? And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely we can. Uh <laughs> So, uh, Brenda uh, uh, Orland sent over some stats late last night. I just want to brag on the Lord with you for a moment. Um, 136 people indicated professions of faith, 41 rededicated, 740 pairs of shoes were handed out, over 100 haircuts were given. Gideon's handed out 625 Bibles, 283 people experienced dental exams, 109 were seen by chiropractors, 53 screened by audiologists, 105 were seen by nurses, around 1,000 people showed up, 200 volunteers, and six pallets of food from Convoy of Hope was distributed. Incredible. (laughs) And for those who gave money for gift cards, they were raffling off. They ended up with so many gift cards that they ended up raffling them off every 15 minutes. So every 15 minutes, somebody was getting a $100 gift card to Old Navy or a $100 gift card to a clothing area or groceries. And we, y'all literally were a part of some people in Roswell having hope. One story was there was a homeless woman who kind of wandered into and onto the grounds at City Hall and after spending some time, uh, she's now going to be getting some help. There was also a young teenager who was involved in prostitution who had resisted sort of the urgings and the calls to get out of it and uh, was headlong into addiction. Folks had been trying to get her into rehab and get her help and out of that lifestyle for some time. Uh, She was reluctant, uh, but uh, as of tomorrow, she's starting rehab. And the Lord is going to start to pull her out of that life. Y'all, when God's people show up to bring healing and to be Jesus in the world, it changes and transforms lives. So I am grateful for y'all. Without further ado, would you take your copy of God's Word and meet me in the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 3 this morning. As you turn there, a couple of more uh, things I want to place before you next week. October second, our very own Dr. Crawford Loritz will be preaching here, and I am so excited to welcome him back. I was talking with he and Lee Jenkins just about a week ago, um, and Lee said something. Pastor Lee said something that was so incredibly profound. He said, "Jason, there is no you at Fellowship Roswell if he didn't come first." And I told Pastor Lee, "I said, you're exactly right. I'm standing on his shoulders." Um, And in so many ways, I'm so grateful for the way the ministry God has called him to both here and around the world. So he's coming back home to share, to preach. Uh, We will gladly sit under his teaching and hear from him. Also, um, if you're interested in becoming uh, and being baptized, on October the 16th, we're going to be having baptism class. We believe that baptism is an external action that indicates an internal transformation So if God has saved your soul, it is a time for us to celebrate and throw a party because Satan lost another one. And in that, if that's you, on October 16th, we'll be doing that. Also, child dedication class will begin October 9th, and the actual dedication will be on October 30th. And so if you have a child like I do who's not yet been dedicated, then I commend that to you. And then this afternoon, lastly uh, at four, we're going to be having a family meeting, which is a time for uh, members and current and, and, and uh, attenders and non-members to come together to hear some high-level updates, to get a look and see how we're doing financially, but also to have some Q and A. And so uh, we've only got about two or three more where these will be open to uh, non-members as well. And so uh, we've been working behind the scenes on a ton of stuff. We want to show it to you. And so that's this afternoon at four. Uh yeah, child care registrations kind of shut down last night, uh, but if you want to come and don't mind your child being with you, then please make some plans to be with us at four. Mark chapter three, we're going to be in verses 22 through 35, and after I read the text, I'm going to be praying this morning for Gerald Fatayomi and Home Church, who office right out these doors. Um, so we're going to be praying for them. We're also going to be praying for Identity Daytona uh, and Byron Cogdale, who is right off the campus of Bethune-Cookman, and we're going to be praying for Herman Alb this morning, our brother, faithful brother in Guatemala. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray for them and for the word. Hear the word of the Lord. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answers them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jump back up to verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And before considering it, we should pray. Let's pray. Father, you called your servant, Gerald, to be a herald and proclaimer of your word And you've called that church to be a place of home for those who are homeless, spiritually and otherwise. Father, would you bless the work of their hands? Would you not only add to their number, but would you increase their joy? Lord, I thank you that we have a small part to play in their story. But here in the city of Roswell, Lord, we would not believe in any competition in the kingdom of God. For you have called your servants, and it is a joy to partner with them. So in the ways that make sense, moving ahead, would you grant us wisdom to know how to do that? And remember our brother Byron this morning, and Kimyata and their children as they labor. Even right now, Father, would you fill his heart and his spirit with strength and trust Uh, Father, I pray that you would grant him the words of clarity uh, and also power as he stands to proclaim your word this morning. We thank you for the provision that you brought to that church as they have uh, continued to be faithful to the people that you've sent them and ask that you would increase and enlarge their territory. As Byron works on campus, I pray that you would increase his favor with those there and that you would use Identity Daytona to bring shalom in and throughout the Daytona area. And for our brother Herman, we just give you thanks for that brother, for that servant who has yielded to your spirit and also yielded to the work. Thank you for his long obedience in the same direction. Thank you for the hands and the feet that have brought healing and hope in and throughout Guatemala, Father. They have needs and Lord, you're the one who is greater, but would you provide? Would you provide the teams? Would you provide the resources? Would you provide the opportunities? for Herman and his team to continue to not only uh, provide physical healing, but also the spiritual healing that accompanies Jesus, you making and repairing bodies. So would you do this in your great name? Father, we do thank you for this word. Thank you that it speaks to your son whom you've sent. And spirit of God, you are the hand that penned the words on these pages. Would you be our guide and our interpreter this morning? We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 I want to begin this morning with a question. What is the will of God? If you've ever been 19, perhaps you've wrestled with the answer to this question, what is the will of God? Or you might be 65, still asking or perhaps pondering the question, what is the will of God? It is a question that has nonetheless proved to be a conundrum, an enigma. It has vexed and flummoxed Christians for centuries. In some ways, trying to figure out what the will of God is is like trying to figure out what you're going to have for dinner with your spouse. What you want for dinner? I don't know. What you want? I don't know. What you want? I'll eat anything. Oh, really? You want a burger? No. You want some chicken? No. You want some seafood? No. You want Italian? No. You want pizza? No. I don't know what I want. I saw a meme that said uh, it was two skeletons sitting next to each other, and it was husband and wife uh, after debating and never figuring out what they were eating for dinner. (laughs) But the will of God can be a tricky thing to discern, especially as we are trying to do our best. I've told you this before. I fully believe that each one of us is doing the absolute best we can at this point in time. And in many ways, we're just trying to figure out what the next step is what is the will of God? I'm going to tell you what the will of God is, but first I need to give you the thrust, the main point of this entire sermon. For the next 30 minutes, I want to show you how Jesus illustrates in verses 20 through 25, 35 rather, what the will of God is. First, here's the thrust. It's very simple. Know the will of God and do it. It's the main point of this entire sermon. Know the will of God and do it. Now, some of y'all are saying, but Jason, you still haven't told us what the will of God is. I'm still confounded. I am still vexed and flummoxed, which I really like that word. It just feels really good rolling off the tongue. It means that we're confused about something. But here's the will of God. The will of God is to cultivate shalom in and through the family of God. The big biblical theological will of God that we can trace from Genesis to Revelation is that God wants us to live in the garden again. And what typified garden life? It was shalom. It was man, it was woman, it was God in perfect unity. There was no strife, there was no fighting, there was no disease, there was no lack, it was wholeness, it's shalom. And in many ways, the will of God, the entire story of God is him getting us back to that point. So this morning, as we turn our attention to what Jesus is doing here, because there's a lot here, I want us to know the will of God and do it. But sometimes, first point this morning, sometimes the will of God looks crazy. In verse 20, we get a picture of Jesus' own family looking at Jesus. He's just commissioned the disciples, made them apostles, given them the power to cast out demons. Then everybody's flocking to him to heal Their disease and to fix what's broken. And his family is looking at him like, What happened to this man? In the Greek, the word is literally Jesus has gone berserk. He's crazy. And they call to him to get him to come back. His family tries to keep him from. Ministry. Now, here's the picture. This is Jesus' family. This is Mary. This is James. and This is Jesus' family who are looking at Jesus and telling him, you need to stop. His very own family getting in the way of Jesus' ministry. And this is a really good time to bring out a very common theme throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. And that theme is a failure of discipleship. Those who should have the right answers don't, and it shocks and surprises us that those who walked with Jesus could be so blind. But it gives me great hope, because if Jesus's own mama thought he was crazy, it stands to reason, A, that I don't get it right all the time, but also people might look upon the way of Jesus as a little bit nuts. But also, we know that by the end of the story, by the end of the narrative, James, Jesus's brother, who's presumably here rebuking Jesus, ends up being the leader in the Jerusalem council after Jesus's resurrection. So he may have missed it here, but somewhere along the way, he got it. Here's a word. Here's just a quick nugget. Friends, don't give up on people. Don't give up on them. They may not get it today, they may not understand it today. Don't give up on them, give them grace and space and time. Because sometimes the will of God looks crazy. I made a decision in 2009 to walk away from the NFL and literally everybody said I was crazy. I made a decision to literally walk away from hundreds of thousands of dollars and the prestige of life in the league. It was the best decision I've ever made because I knew I was walking squarely in the will of God to what he had called me to from the time I was 13. But that looked crazy to people. Jesus's ministry doesn't look like what they thought it would look like. It looks different, so they think it's crazy. It reminds me of this time I bought uh, some house slippers on Amazon. You ever bought something on Amazon and you look at all the pictures and you're like, wow, this looks great, and then it comes and it's like, this looks nothing like the pictures. Like I, I'm looking at these house slippers because I don't like walking barefoot around my house. Uh, I've been told it's like a black people thing. I don't know. Uh, we're a monolith. We're very different people, so I just don't like doing it. So I buy some house slippers, and I look at them, and they look good. They look soft and cushiony, but then I get them, and they're like, They're shaped like a banana and they fit like lopsided and like the emblem that's on them is backwards from the look like in the picture. And I'm so disappointed. These don't look like nothing like what I thought they would. And there's a case in which Jesus's own family and even his disciples, he doesn't look like what they thought he would. Even though Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come to set the captives free, he would heal their disease. And here he is doing just that, but in a different way, and his own family doesn't believe. Which begs the question, what gets us to believe? Like what gets us to really see God, to to see God and believe in who he is? What gets us to see Jesus? I remember watching old episodes of uh, Barbara Walters on 2020. I remember this one episode, they had this man who had died and gone to heaven. And I was so excited because I waited around an entire hour to see a computer generated rendering of what heaven was like. This is 1994, by the way. What came up was a series of vectors and images. I was wholly disappointed. But I remember around that time, I began to ask the Lord, God, show me a sign. God, show me a sign that you're real. And I'd sit in my room and I'd wait for something to fall in the corner. Or I'd like fake wake up and like try to catch an angel in my room. Like I was looking for a sign. I'm like, God, if, if you're real, I felt like Gideon. Hey, God, if you really want me to do this, I need you to make this fleece wet and the ground dry. And I'm expecting God to do it so then I can go back and test God and be like, okay, oh, me of little faith, can you make the ground dry and the fleece wet? I'm just asking for you to move a pencil off my desk, God. Just give me a sign. And the words of DMX, God, give me a sign. But I think what this text shows us and what the entire Bible shows us is that signs and miracles are insufficient to produce faith. Jesus is casting out demons and his family still doesn't believe. Think about Israel. They saw signs and miracles. They saw God literally part a body of water, and they still walked away stiff-necked. Here's the point. Signs and miracles don't produce faith. Belief and trust in the person and work of Jesus do. The will of God looks crazy, and we're looking for these grand gestures, these big movements of God, these Big times of clarity when really that the will of God in bringing shalom is found in doing it. But really it's found not in signs and miracles, but in faith. The disciples of Jesus heard God's voice. How many times have you begged to hear God's voice? God, I just want to hear what somebody said God told me. And I'm like, yo, what his voice sound like? Because I'm really trying to find out. They heard his voice. And we see all throughout, the, all throughout the gospels, the disciples failing, Peter rebuking Jesus, James and John fighting over position, Thomas saying, I'll never believe Jesus. Hey, let's go die since we're going back to heal Lazarus over and over again, failure. And they saw signs, they heard God's voice. They saw the dove descending from the clouds and that wasn't enough. And what about Mary? She had a whole angel show up and say, you're gonna be married with child and it ain't Joseph's. And she's like, hmm, that's interesting. And we seen that song, Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. She pondered it in her heart. A whole angel talked to this woman and here she is standing yelling at Jesus, trying to get Jesus to do what she wants him to do. Here's the point. Even if God were to do exactly what we want him to do at all times and show us all the things, it would be insufficient for faith it would entitle and enable us to continue to see God as a cosmic celestial genie who simply gives us what we want rather than trusting and believing when it doesn't make sense that he's still worth following. Signs and miracles were meant to be little crumbs along the yellow brick road to point people to see who Jesus was but rather it tended here especially to conceal. We can't take Jesus on our own terms. We've got to take Jesus on his. Because he won't often look like what we want him to and he won't always work in ways that make sense to us. It's like the old church mothers and church fathers used to sing. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. We gotta take him on his terms now. There's something important here. There's a very dire warning here in the text concerning a very important type of sin, second point this morning. It's the unforgivable sin and the forgiveness that Jesus points to. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln gave a speech to the Illinois Republican State Convention. Long before he was president, before he gave the Gettysburg Address. He said this concerning the nation. Quoting from Matthew and Mark, he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave, half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it to cease to be divided. It will become all one thing Or all the other. There was a crucial point in history when the question about slavery and new states entering the Union was central to voting and power within the United States. Lincoln rightly surmises that this fracture and this rift is going to tear us apart. We either need to be a nation who's all about slavery or accepting none of it. Because ultimately, he said, a house divided cannot stand, and shortly thereafter, as he's in office, the civil war breaks out. Now, what's he getting at? What he's getting at, and he's quoting from this very passage of Scripture, as Jesus is being accused of something. These scribes, who have enjoyed a position of high status because they are teachers of Torah. They are the interpreters. They're the walking commentaries. If you have a particular pastor or theologian that you really, really like, imagine being able to go and sit physically at his feet, have him expound upon the word and tell you exactly what everything was. These scribes enjoyed that. Now here's this guy who shows up, he's teaching something slightly different and they attribute his work to the devil. They believe that Jesus is actually sent from Satan because that's the only way that he can perform these miracles. They can't deny these miracles are being performed. But this guy, surely he can't be from God because he don't look nothing like what I think he should look like. He's got to be from Satan. So Jesus speaks in a parable. Now, this is interesting. That word, parable, Jesus speaks in parables for two reasons. To illuminate the truth to those who are seeking and hearing but also to conceal the truth from those who only want to have their own narratives confirmed. And so here's Jesus. And he says, either he's sent by God fully or he's sent by Satan fully, because how in the world, how in the world can Satan fight against Satan? There's something wrong here. And then Jesus uses this parable of the strong man. Now, uh, I used to watch the strongman competitions as a child, and I used to love Magnus for Magnuson, this uh, uh, Icelandic um, modern-day superhero. This dude was, I mean, I used to think he was a god. There were two dudes in my life that if I had a physique like them, I wanted to have a physique like them. One, Magnus Ver Magnuson, and the other uh, was, uh, well, there was Flex Wheeler. Um, but there, there was also this uh, 11-time Mr. Olympia, uh, Ronnie Coleman, that was my guy. I wanted to be like Ronnie Coleman. And whenever I read this passage, I thought in my mind about Jesus binding up Ronnie Coleman or Flex Wheeler or Magnus or Magnuson, and it blew my mind So I'm like, you can't tie this guy with ropes. He's going to rip him off. You can't put him on cables. You can't rip him off. And I'm like, Jason, it's not that deep. Because what Jesus is saying is, there's a strong man in a kingdom there's a strong man in a house, the kingdom of the world, the house of Satan. Jesus goes into that house to bind the strong man, to take his kingdom and to plunder his goods. So Jesus is essentially saying he's going into to bind Satan. How is he binding Satan? He is restricting the evil and the brokenness in the world everywhere he steps foot, because he's liberating them from the oppression that is caused by the evil spirits attributed and that belong to Satan. So everywhere he steps, he's bringing wholeness, he's bringing shalom. Everywhere he touches, he's bringing healing, but he's not done because he's not only gonna bind the strong man, but the text says that he's gonna plunder him. Look in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he may plunder his house. What is Jesus plundering, you might ask? He's plundering the assets of the evil one. And what are the assets of the evil one? A couple things about Satan. C.S. Lewis once famously said that most people either ignore him or give him too much credit. They ignore him at their own peril or they attribute modern common things to Satan. But here's a couple things Satan is not omnipotent, Satan is not omnipresent. There's nowhere he can be everywhere at once. And some of us are attributing stuff to Satan and y'all, let's just be honest, you're not that important for Satan to mess with. So what he does is he dispatches his demons, his minions, in the form of evil and brokenness and sickness and disease to infect the world. These are his assets. He can't be everywhere at once. But the myriad of angels who fell alongside of him that he dispatches to do his bidding, he can dispatch them. So what Jesus does in the previous pericope, as he's commissioning his disciples, he says, you're going to do two things. You're going to preach and you're going to deliver people from demons. You're gonna preach, you're gonna deliver people from demons. You can go look at it for yourself. It's in Mark three verses 13 through 19. He says, you're gonna preach and you're gonna deliver people from demons. Why? because he's plundering Satan's house. He's expelling demons. He's curbing the brokenness. He's bringing healing everywhere he goes. He's marching into the enemy's camp. He's gonna whoop the enemy and then he's gonna take all the stuff that belongs to him and then he's going to inject goodness and love and shalom where the enemy used to be. What Jesus is talking about here is a whole takeover but it's done with guerrilla tactics in a way that doesn't make sense to these people. He's removing principalities and spiritual forces that stand against the will of God. But there's still the matter of this unforgivable sin. There's still the matter of this sin in just two verses. This unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? If you're like me, I'm listening to this and reading the text like, hey, am I guilty of this? When I was a kid growing up in the church that I grew up in, I always heard that there was only one forgivable sin and that it was suicide. I've since come to know that that's a lie from the pit of hell. Someone else later on in my life attributed the unforgivable sin to chronic and perpetual sexual sin. I know now that that's a lie. What has led to these misperceptions and what has led to people believing things that aren't true? Friends, it's bad exegesis because the answer is right here in the text. We simply got to read it. In verse 30, Jesus clarifies exactly why and what he's talking about. There's an unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, verse 30, for they were saying he has a demon. Which gives us an indication as to the type of what, or what type of sin this actually is. They are attributing Jesus' ministry and power to Satan and not the Holy Spirit. They're doing two things. They're slandering Jesus, violating the commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain, and they're plagiarizing his work. They're looking at the Son of God, and they're calling what's good evil. And in many ways, they call what's evil good. If you want to know what the presence of evil and demonic spirits look like. It is when people no longer can see the clear differences and determine what is good and what's evil. They call good evil and they call evil good And here. This sin is that they would rather believe that this man is empowered by the devil than God. So here it is for us. We commit the unforgivable sin when we slander Jesus by calling his good work evil, thus blaspheming the Holy Spirit who empowers him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God. The Spirit of God empowers him to do the miracles, to bring healing, and to do the signs and wonders that he does, that is of God. How dare you attribute that work to Satan? putting some flesh and blood on it, there are people walking through this world who truly, actually believe that Jesus is evil. And we would do wise, friends, even in our lamentation to God, to be mindful that we don't call good evil. Now, here's some comfort because I know some of you all have sat in hot seats in churches for a long time, and if you're like me, you're like, well, am I guilty of this? If you're worried that you've committed this sin, it's likely you haven't. And even if there is conviction falling over you where you've called Jesus evil, friend, the invitation is to repent and believe. You may have missed it like Jesus, his brothers, his mother, but there's still time. These scribes have called good, evil, and their downfall will be their insistence on this point and their unwillingness to repent and believe. Don't be unwilling to repent and believe. So again, for the second week running, we see people getting in Jesus's way. I'm rounding third. I'm about to come home. But as they slander Jesus, there's another group at play here that doesn't say anything. They're a silent group. You might even call them invisible, but it gives us an indication concerning family. Who's in the family of Jesus, who's not in the family of Jesus. Third and finally this morning, what we find is the invisible family of God. In theology, there's a a theological framework about the church. There's the visible church and there's the invisible church. The visible church is the church that you see. That's everyone that I see with my eyes. That's everyone who looks like a Christian, who goes to church, lives a moral, upright life, and professes to follow Jesus. That's the visible church. The invisible church is all of the church that actually belongs to Jesus. What's the difference? The difference is there are people in the visible church who look like they belong to Jesus, but they actually have never fully trusted in the person and work of Christ. So you've got a visible church that looks like it's the real church, but the invisible church looks much different. This invisible church is clearly illustrated throughout the Old Testament when you've got Israel, and Israel, they are God's people, but not even all of Israel belong to God. Some of them did, Some of them didn't. Some of them followed God. Some of them didn't. So there's a difference between the visible and invisible church. Think about the disciples. Jesus had 12 of them, and one of them was a traitor, Judas. Not all of Jesus' disciples were in the family, so to speak. And then you think about the post-resurrection church, and the church— especially in the south, is a visible, common mainstay of life down here. And there are a lot of people that go to church. Praise God. There are so many folks that sit under the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. And we would be fools if we believed that everyone was in the family of God. Now, in this text, once again, I want you to look at something with me. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. His mothers and his brothers come. These are his biological family in the family of God. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So here's the picture. Jesus is in the house with a group of people so thick, his own mother and brothers can't get into the house. So they're standing outside of the house calling him. Jesus, come out here. So here they are, again, trying to control Jesus, trying to get Jesus to act on their own terms. Here they are on the outside looking in, and what Jesus is doing is he's redefining family. And he redefines family, not according to blood, but according to what? Look at verse 35. He defines family according to those who do the will of God. So here's Jesus in the house. Here's his family outside. And once again, they are trying to stop what Jesus is doing and what a grievous and shameful thing it is to try to stop the work of Jesus because it's inconvenient to you or it looks different than the way that you thought it should be done. True disciples are with Jesus and do the will of God full stop. They are Jesus's true family. When I think about this activity of trying to thwart God, I'm reminded of that scene in Acts where the Sanhedrin gets together and they're discussing Peter and John and their works and activity. And the council was ready to throw them all away. And Gamaliel, this venerable figure in Judaism's history stands up and he says, in Acts 5, 38 through 39, if this plan or this undertaking is of a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So what Jesus does is he talks about the sin of blasphemy, which is those who attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, and then he draws another line. Essentially saying those who do my will are my family and those who try to stop it. They're opposing God in the same category as Satan and demons. Jesus's is opposing God. The scribes are opposing God. But these invisible, silent people, probably broken Pharisees, tax collectors, folks with seedy reputation, sitting in this house with Jesus, they're with him doing the will of God. The real work that matters is in the house doing his will. So, friends, how do we know if we're opposing God? I'm gonna turn back to the first point. Know the will of God and do it. Know the will of God and do it. What is the will of God? The will of God is for us to be agents of God, bringing shalom in and through the family of God. It is the family of God that God has chosen to work through, the family of God that he has chosen to be a blessing to the world. It's the family of God. It is us. It's the church. So how do we do God's will? Now, in order to answer this, I'm almost done. I promise. I got like four minutes. Just hang in there with me. I'm almost done. I got to bring this home. I gotta, I'm like halfway in between third. and I think I just pulled a hammy, so I'm kind of limping a little, a little bit, but we're going we gonna to get there. All right? There are three things that help us determine what the will of God looks like. Three things. Relationship, vocation, replication. Think Genesis 3 in the garden. God, man, woman, all of creation. There's relationship. There's intimacy between man, woman, and God. There's intimacy between man and woman. What does the will of God looks like? It looks like us pursuing shalom in relationship with God, being made right with God by faith, and then being made right with one another by a lifetime of saying, I'm sorry, and seeking the welfare of the other over and above ourselves. Second is vocation. Vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means calling. This is more than just a job. This is the work that God has called you to do. This is the way that God has called you to image him in the world. And the way that God has called you to image him in the world through your work is one of the ways that you get to get your hands in the dirt and to create and to be a blessing and to cultivate goodness in the world that's work that's why what we do on sunday really matters on monday because you're getting your hands in the dirt and you're creating and working alongside god for the good of others and then the third throw that back up there please the third is replication god tells man and woman in the garden he says be fruitful and what multiply i am doing my part y'all and i I need this baby to come on and get here because i'm I'm ready. But to be fruitful and multiply. So when it comes to replication, does that mean that we are replicating godly children? Yes, that's exactly what that means. And it means in the post-resurrection church that we are making disciples of all nations. Not training and teaching them to follow Jesus exactly as I follow Jesus in the ways that I was taught, but coming to the text and saying, this is what Jesus looks like, do that. Don't come to me looking at me saying, yeah, follow me as I follow Christ, but I'm always going to point you back to what Jesus looks like. It looks like not making carbon copies and clones of ourselves, but making carbon copies and clones of Jesus. Replication means that we herald the good news regardless of the circumstances or consequences. So that the world is populated by people who do not refer to the work of Jesus as evil and that they are a blessing to the world this work is the will of God this is the will of God it's the will of God for the church it's the will of God for your life if you want to walk you want to know the will of God you want to walk in the will of God Make sure your relationships are healthy. Make sure you're working in the area and the arena that God has called you to to bless the world and also make sure that you are replicating followers of Jesus. But perhaps that's a bit too top shelf. Let me just finish on a very simple application. Very, very simple application. Here it is. In terms of determining what the will of God is, to go back to the first question. Here's how I would invite you into determining and discerning what that looks like for you. Knowing what you know about God and knowing what he wants from his family. What is the next right step? Not the five-year vision, not the 10-year vision, not even the 18-month plan. What's the next right step today? For some people that might be having a conversation, spiritual conversation over lunch. For some people, that might be a phone call or a text message. For some people, that might be picking up your Bible for the first time in a long time, and it's been hard, and you haven't wanted to do it, and your heart's not in it. But maybe the next right step is for your head to do something and for your heart to catch up. Whatever that looks like, we as the family of God are in this thing together. And we're going to pursue the will of God together. So. For the next few moments, I want us to be with Jesus and to do what he says. And if the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has been leading you in a particular direction, I want us to take just a few moments to hear from the Spirit of God, to be faithful, to know what that is, and then commit to do that. So whatever response looks like in this moment, let's just take a few moments to spend some time with the Lord, and I will close us in prayer here in just a moment. Hasten near to us, O Lord, hasten near to us and hear our cries and our pleas for help. Receive those into your care who have called upon your name even just now, who have trusted you fully for perhaps the first time. And help and lead us as we seek to know and do your will and what you called us to. As we sing now, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fill our hearts with gladness. And that you would encourage our souls as we hear our brothers and sisters sing. So come now, live in the praises of your people, we pray and ask. In the name of Christ and for his sake. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. Amen.